My name is John Paul Rico, and I'm a professor here at the University of Toronto, where I teach uh, comparative literature and art history. In my talk this afternoon, I will explore a series of definitions in order to advance distinctions between isolation, loneliness, and solitude. Each names an existential condition, and like everything today, has been intensified or made glaringly apparent in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Specifically, I am interested in how isolation, loneliness, and solitude, in addition to their affective operations, bear upon questions of ethics and politics. As I see it, none of them stands outside or opposite the social, but are themselves social phenomena even if two of them are impoverished and diminished forms. In my work, I theorize separation as the spacing of the ethical, in which the ethical is understood to be a shared sustaining of separation, which is also the space between. Prior to any ethical decision as to what form or tone the social will take, or what degree of contact or resonance the social will resound, there's the decision to keep this space between open and to be decided. This has led me to understand decision as itself a spacing, specifically one of separation. Given this, the current notion of social distancing is something of an oxymoron. That is, if we accept that distancing is the very spacing that structures any sense of the social. The ethical, as the decision between us, is the shared decision to sustain the separated spacing that is not only the zone of ethical sociality, but also the space of freedom. Freedom that is from that space ever being wholly mine, yours, or ours to claim, but instead is what is left open inappropriable and to be decided, not once and for all, but with each shared experience of betweenness. The question of the ethical is not whether there is distance and separation, but what kind or mode of rapport is there to that spacing? This is where questions of isolation, loneliness, and solitude enter into the discussion. If, as I have said, separation is the spacing of the ethical, then isolation is the evacuation of that space, such that one is abandoned to a mindness that is lacking betweenness. In turn, the deprivation of that space of social isolation is what generates the feeling of loneliness. It is as though in loneliness, one is abandoned even from that space that was one's own isolation. By being abandoned solely to oneself or being dispossessed of even that, isolation and loneliness are social forms of being unmoored in the world to the precise extent that they exist without the tethering provided by the separated spacing that is the condition for sharing that structures decision and is the hallmark of the ethical.
in order to get at the political stakes of this impoverishment of the ethical, we can turn to Hannah Arendt and her analysis of isolation, loneliness, and solitude in the origins of totalitarianism, which he published in 1951. In the final chapter of the book titled Ideology and Terror, a novel form of government, Arendt identifies what it is that distinguishes totalitarianism from other forms of political oppression, such as despotism, tyranny, and dictatorship. She wants to know what it seizes upon and either exploits or destroys in order to wield its novel form of power. According to Arendt, it is the law that totalitarianism exploits, destroying the space between people, which she conceives as being structured by laws. While for Arendt, the space of separation is held up by legal norms and the ethico-political derives its force in the ongoing birth of generations or what she refers to as natality, I am interested in the ethical as that which does not necessarily answer to legal imperatives and in which intrusion, distinct from natality or birth, is a more impersonal force of the ethico-political. Nonetheless, where our thinking converges is in the question of living together as the most common fact and matter of existence, along with a commitment to the irreducible role of solitude in any sense of the common. Contrary to widespread opinion and understanding, one of the effects of the response to the current global crisis has been bringing people too close together. That is by way of the isolation that comes close to a new universal condition of life caused by a widespread fear of contagion and transmission. In their fear of the foreigner, the stranger, and the proximate other, people are being drawn and are drawing themselves tightly together. From a critical vantage, the worry is that no matter how much the current protocols of isolation are taken up to protect others and to pick up the shortfall in the medical infrastructure that neoliberalism has systematically dismantled, the worry is that in our isolation, we might also be isolated together against each other. This is at least one of the negative valences of the expression, we're all in this together. Rather than see the current isolation as opening up the space between, I think we need to understand it as the further erosion and potential destruction of that very space. As Arendt writes, quote, by pressing men against each other, total terror destroys the space between them. You can hear the resonance between Arendt's language and my own. Here, Arendt is speaking of the total terror of totalitarianism and how such regimes draw upon the tyranny of isolation as their groundwork by depriving people of public political life and thereby making it difficult for them to act in the name of the common and in the name of common concerns. 
as she explains, isolation may be the beginning of terror. It certainly is its most fertile ground. It always is its result. Arendt is fully aware of more positive forms of isolation, requisite for the pursuit of artistic practice, for instance, or writing, craftsmanship, and other modes of making and fabrication that benefit from being left to one's creative potential. She also recognizes that even these welcomed periods of isolation can bring on feelings of loneliness. Nonetheless, as is evident by the work of Homo Faber, just dis dis described, this is someone who retains the ability to move. And as Arendt puts it, quote, to add something of one's own to the common world. Indeed, she goes so far as to note that, quote, tyranny based on isolation generally leaves the productive capacities of man intact. The bigger problem arises when that connection between the creator and the common world is eliminated. At that point, isolation is unbearable and breeds a sense of loneliness. According to Arendt, tyranny abolishes the fences of laws between men, while nonetheless leaving behind what she describes as the lawless, fenceless wilderness of fear and suspicion. It is easy for us to read this as a description of the current situation, the one in which we're living today, in which people are fearful and suspicious of those invisible fences demarcating six feet of distance between them and others. Yet the point is that totalitarianism goes further and destroys these lawless, fenceless desert islands as well. One of the most important differences between tyranny and totalitarianism that I think bears on our understanding of the current pandemic as well, is that whereas the isolation of the desert island still provides space for one to move, albeit fearfully and suspiciously, the total terror of totalitarian governance eliminates that very capacity by destroying the space between. As Arendt puts it, totalitarian government does not just curtail liberties or abolish essential freedoms, nor does it, at least to our limited knowledge, succeed in eradicating the love for freedom from the hearts of men. It destroys the one essential prerequisite of all freedom, which is simply the capacity of motion, which cannot exist without space. That is, the space of being in the world with others and the rapport that one has to it, to this between, is, I will argue, what we might understand by solitude. In the context of the current pandemic, when many people find themselves physically isolated and feeling lonely, and the movement and movement has been curtailed and at times restricted, and there is a pervasive fear and suspicion of others during those moments when one is moving about in the world, a concern about the tyranny of isolation 
and it's serving as preparation for greater destruction of the space between is, I think, far from unfounded. I now want to delve deeper into the question of movement, which is always a matter of ethics and politics. In doing so, we'll see what happens when the separated spacing of the social, structured according to Arendt by laws, as I've mentioned, is replaced by movement, which comes to function as the only law or logic of governance. Arendt opens her chapter on ideology and terror with a critique of notions of development, progress, and actualization that have guided and shaped modernity and represented in its major philosophical and theoretical systems of thought. The uh, three principal systems, of course, being Hegelianism, Marxism, and Darwinism. All attempts to theorize the law of history and of nature, and both of those ultimately as the law of man. So what she's talking about here is history as law, nature as law, man as law, all following this law of movement. In these and all related cases, we're dealing with a philosophy of becoming, in which it is the sheer movement of history or nature that serves as the basis for all forms of logic and law. Arendt calls this the metaphysics of movement, in which movement is regarded and revered as the only force that matters in thinking about the social and the political experience and existence. And she sees these as underpinning the ideology of totalitarianism, which operates through its own myths of progress or metaphysical drives that transcend the particulars of human existence. For Arendt, terror is this, quote, realization of the law of movement. And its chief aim is to make it possible for the force of nature or of history to race freely through mankind, unhindered by any spontaneous human action. Opposite this would be the non-volitional movement theorized by Leo Bersani, a pure force as pure means without end, following Giorgio Agamben's formulation. That is to say, a kind of movement counter to productive, appropriating, and redemptive logics, but instead devoted to what remains inoperative, inappropriable, and irreparable. This would be simply life in its living and, more broadly speaking, the sheer facticity of existence. Existence that is given over to the singularity of its finitude and of its solitude, meaning just life as such, just the life that it is. This is what Walter Benjamin meant by justice as the ethical category of the existent. Justice takes place when life is returned to the solitude of its singularity and hence to its free and common use and care amongst others. Meaning, this is life that is not determined by law and law's inextricable relation to property and possession, 
but also life is that which does not succumb to the force and law of movement. For the law of movement proceeds negatively via a death drive or a life drive. We need to include the life drive as one force of negativity because this drive for life, in other words, becoming over simply being, is its own process of eliminating, abandoning, and extinguishing all forms of life that are deemed weak and dispensable. It is this division of mere life into productive life and bare life that Agamben has traced in his Homo Sacer project. Agamben's project is dedicated to thinking life inseparable from its form and thereby also separated from the dictates of law. When life comes to be determined by law, and that law is the political instantiation of what Arendt calls the metaphysics of movement, in other words, becoming, life is made to be that which is always in need of being repaired or redeemed, or that which must be made operative and productive. But to the extent that any life is made redeemable, it is also at the same time that which can be sacrificed. In a sense, Agamben points out how homo laborens and homo faber, that is laboring and productive man, are always susceptible to being rendered as homo soccer, sacrificed man. This is because the modern biopolitical machine finds no use for homo tantum, that is the human as such, just as it is in the singularity of its solitude. The form of life of homo tantum is that life that is lived, not dictated by the external law of negativity, but according to an imminent sense of its irreparable singularity. Like Benjamin, Arendt regarded the late 19th century as the moment, the historical moment, when this sense of justice was radically betrayed. As she writes, the tremendous intellectual change which took place in the middle of the last century consisted in the refusal to view or accept anything as it is, and in the consistent interpretation of everything as being only a stage of some further development. It is the law of movement that generates the isolation that so often accompanies life solely dedicated to being productive and the loneliness that is the affective void into which one is plunged when, quoting Arendt again, even the productive potentialities of isolation are annihilated by destroying all space between men and pressing men against each other. Loneliness is the destruction of one's social sphere and the expropriation of the inappropriable heart of the self wherein lies one's essential solitude, to quote Maurice Blanchot. Loneliness is a form of bare life, of political, public, private, and ethical abandonment and desertion, 
in which one is moved from the isolating realm of no world only islands, with those being desert islands, to no world in which even the islands are deserted. With the world today plunged, uh, excuse me, plagued by massive wildfires, never ending droughts, glacial melts, unprecedented climate heating, coral bleaching, species die-offs and extinctions, climate war and famine, refugees lost at sea, and yes, of course, viral pandemics. It is hard not to think in terms similar to those used by Arendt herself in 1951 when she wrote, if this practice, and she's referring to the total destruction of the space between, if this practice is compared with that of tyranny, it seems as if a way had been found to set the desert itself in motion, again, via this metaphysical law of movement, to let loose a sandstorm that could cover all parts of the inhabited earth. I now want to turn briefly to a short story recently published in the New Yorker magazine, the 18th of May this year, um, by Jonathan Lethem, in which he introduces us to just such a world of isolation and loneliness that, like the political scenario described by Arendt, is structured through the near utter lack of space between people. The facility where the main character, simply referred to by the initial R, is sent, at first resembles an airport terminal, although ultimately it remains unclear exactly which architectural genre the building corresponds to, being something of an amalgam of corporate atrium tower and a mega communal water slide and swimming pool. The place is filled with people, swept up in a constant flow of movement rarely if ever encountering each other in anything resembling what we might call the social. As though the direct inverse por uh, portrait of society in the COVID pandemic, in which today airports and other large gathering spaces are emptied of bodies and pedestrians avoid coming in physical proximity with each other, Lethem describes a, a place that is dense with bodies where it becomes increasingly difficult to move about while at the same time eliciting the desire to find some open space. At one point we read, quote, ahead in the great stream of bodies are now spotted a kind of island, an area left vacant. And then a few lines further, he longed for the elbow room it really had grown impossible to move without making contact with those edging him on, on every side. Despite how all were invested in the imperative of constant motion. Reading this today, this scene is our worst COVID nightmare. And while the next line after what I just quoted reads, are moved for the open space, the story goes on to describe how R eventually succumbs to being cast, like all the other bodies, into a mass, the density of which renders everyone unable to speak, let alone to move. Here we find described a scenario 
in which an utter congestion of bodies following the law of movement, not only move propelled by a force that is not their own, but do so in total isolation from each other, thanks to being so tightly pressed together. Lethem's dystopian story is an allegory of our times in which everyone is pressed too close together by being isolated from each other in the absence of any space of separation that can be shared between them. The afterlife is both the title and the last words that Lethem gives to his story. I read this not simply as reference to the conventional notion of afterlife, but more so as a description of the status of existence in a world entirely lacking, ultimately, in the space of separation between people. It is this condition of what Arendt might refer to as organized loneliness that comes to define this strange realm as entirely other than and coming after whatever might be referred to as life. Today, the force of law and law of movement take form and find expression in calls for reopening the economy and affirming, as in the case of Ontario's new motto, that states and provinces are open for business. While it may seem as though nearly everything is at a standstill, we know that the stock market has seen dramatic gains and the billionaire class has extracted tremendous profit in these first months of the pandemic. All of this in the name of some principle that supersedes concerns for individual lives and a sense of the common and common concern. Indeed, this has proven itself to be both a lack of concern for one's own life, as well as that of others. In their calls for the end to stay-at-home orders and finding their already isolated and impotent lives being plunged into loneliness, some people would rather risk their health and well-being than remain at home even one more day and face the utter lack of solitude that pervades their lives. There's a moment when Arendt appears prescient, or at least remarkably in tune, with a set of circumstances that has become familiar to us today. As she writes, what prepares men for totalitarian domination in the non-totalitarian world, which is, of course, the world that most people today live in, um, is the fact that loneliness, once a borderline experience, usually suffered in certain marginal social conditions, like old age, she says, has become an everyday experience of the ever-growing masses of our century. And then she says this, the merciless process into which totalitarianism drives and organizes the masses today in terms of this propulsion to open looks like a suicidal escape from this reality. 
the terror that the terror that is now beginning to reveal itself is not only suicidal, but genocidal. As black and brown, poor and underhoused people, single women and mothers, and the elderly are allowed to die in the name of this higher principle disguised in the language of liberty and freedom. In the last few minutes of my talk, by shifting tone a bit, I want to return to the question and by way of further definition, offer a paean to solitude. Solitude is one's own singular way of being the irreducibly finite self that one is in the world. Solitude is that which is essential to any self and that is constant and common to each and every other singular self. It is this solitude that we share in common. It is the very heart of you, what cannot be taken away nor appropriated by others or even by oneself. It is also the inner sense of self-separation and the means for an originary rapport with oneself. It is what Emerson referred to as self-trust. Solitude is the intimate rapport with the outside, not beyond. Hence, it is life that is lived in and as its imminence, and is not to be confused with being isolated, alone, or lonely. Instead, solitude is the sense of being at home in the world, in which the world exists to the extent that it is not relegated to the status of some transcendent beyond, nor some pre-given empirical substance, but is the very spacing of separation in which sharing, freedom, movement, and this fundamental intimate rapport can take place. The spacing of separation is absolutum in strict adherence to this Latin term for that which is separated off. It is in and through this absolute separating or separation, meaning irreducible and not able to be negated, that there are such things as finite singularities and that they resonate with each other. In this sense, solitude is not the one or the alone of monos, nor the unified oneness of unis, but I'd like to think the solace from out of which solidarity can be fashioned. Solitude's intimate rapport with the world, this sharing of solitudes takes place in a space of movement that is not determined by, the move, by movement as law and hence remains a space open to freedom and to justice. As an intimate rapport with the world, with the outside, Solitude has been described by Leo Bersani as ecstatic. Ecstatic in the precise sense of an ascetic jouissance in which, to quote Bersani, the subject has willed its own lessness, can live less invasively in the world. Through such non-appropriating movement, one not only finds solace but at the same time leaves open space for others who, by sharing in the space of separation between, 
will also be less isolated or lonely. Thank you.